Hello and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Bree Fallon and we're here for our monthly current affairs episode, Discourse. With me, I have two of the University of Sydney family, Professor Carol Cusack and Ray Radford. Thank you so much for being here with me today on this episode. Hi, Brianne. It's really good to join you again. Hi, Brianne. It's good to see you. I'm hoping that we can talk about three things that have happened in Australia of late. Definitely. So I'd like to start off by discussing something that happened actually back in January on Australia Day, which is the 26th of January. Now, on this day, not only is it a day of mourning, which we will discuss a little bit later on, but it's a day when the government hands out Australia Day honours to remarkable Australians that have contributed over the course of their life or just a portion of their life to the nation. It was a bit controversial this year for one particular reason. Ray, could you tell us a little bit more about why it was so controversial this year? So the Australia Day Honours is, you know, you get like the um, Australian of the Year, young Australian, old Australian, female, male, all that kind of thing. Um, But this year they decided to award one of the highest honours you can get, um, which is the Order of the Commonwealth of Australia. It's sort of like one of those old ones dating back to like the whole regal era to a tennis player named Margaret Court, um, who some people may know from a tennis uh, arena in Melbourne. That is the Margaret Court arena. Um, she's an apt, has an aptonym. She's aptly she's named. Aptly. Should have been Margaret Court Court, really. I think it works on many levels. Unfortunately, she's now become a bit of a firebrand preacher, um, very anti LGBTQI, um, very, yeah, sort of, she's, she's said some very harsh things over the years, but, um, they've decided to give her this, this award. Um, and it turned out that it was mostly because it, well, it came out after a bit of the furor had died down and the Australian government came out saying it was a gender thing. They'd given one to Rod Laver, so they should probably give one to her. Uh, yeah, that was something I read. That was interesting. I also read somewhere that it wasn't her first award. It was actually a second one that she had received. Carol, where do these awards come from and sort of how do they work? Definitely. Um, I think Ray drew attention to a couple of things that we should keep in mind. The first is that the orders and the honours that are given are, are very kind of old-fashioned, really, and they are linked to Australia's status as a member of the Commonwealth and a part of that part of the world, the the post-colonial world that still has Elizabeth II as a monarch. Um, The Order of Australia and all the other orders that are involved, um, you know, they're a local version, but they're very like the Queen's birthday honours that you, you get from England. So... There are a number of different levels and um, Margaret Court had already received um, a lower award uh, quite a long time ago, actually, uh, 14 years in 2007. She'd been made what was called an Officer of the Order of Australia and this had specifically been because of her tennis abilities and skills. And I guess there was a kind of feeling 
that it wouldn't typically have been the, the case that somebody would double dip, would get like two awards um, for the same thing, particularly since in the last 14 years, of course, she hasn't actually played any tennis or done anything to alter her tennis career, which was something from an earlier period of history. And, you know, she was a distinguished tennis player and it is appropriate whatever her views and opinions are, I think, that something like a tennis arena is named after her. But whether or not she should get the Companion of the Order of Australia, the absolutely highest of the Australia Day honours, um, I think that the, it was justified that politicians and social commentators and journalists raise this question. Because it's almost as though she was upgraded from her original award to then a higher award, which was apparently based on her tennis, but then she hasn't played in so long. And the backlash was that it actually led to a number of people this year who received awards actually rejecting them. Ray, did you read about anybody who rejected their award? Mm. Tell us. Yeah, I think it was, was it Kerry O'Brien rejected his um, who, um, for those who are, are not from Australia, he's a um, long-time journalist and political affairs uh, journalist. Uh, he's quite a good fellow. Um, but there's also a doctor, a trans, uh, trans woman doctor from Canberra who apparently got one a couple of years ago and handed hers back, um, kind of doing that whole, well, you know, what does this mean if we're sort of handing them out like this? Um, as someone who had lived in both worlds as a gay man and now a trans woman, um, you know, she's like, well, you know, what, what are we awarding people for? Mm. Um, but I think, you know, we Australians have this weird attachment to these awards, I think. I remember a couple of years ago when Tony Abbott decided to give a knighthood to Prince Philip, who's already a knight? It's like... Mm. Well, he's a prince. Yeah. He's, he's a, a think, queen. He's you know, a prince. Did he actually need some rubbishy knighthood from Australia? Probably not, but who knows? No. <laughs> well, I guess what we need to bring around for readers now or listeners now is why is this relevant to religious studies? I mean, these honours that are handed out hmm. every year – is it nationalism? Is it civil religion? You know, how does this play into our actual study? Mm. So I'm wondering, Carol, if you can give us a sense of, of where this really fits in in terms of RS. Well, Carol? yeah, look, there are a couple of interesting things. I think definitely civil religious, and I think that the strong connection to the parallel sphere of orders given by Queen Elizabeth II in the United Kingdom as the monarch of uh, a collection of countries, including Australia and Canada, um, as well as um, the United Kingdom. So there's a civil religious aspect. Like um, It's also really interesting to see how the pendulum swings kind of politically because... Um, they're always the politicians, of course, we have a conservative government at the moment, I presume uh, even 
listeners who don't pay much attention to Australia might have gathered that Scott Morrison's government is not exactly uh, progressive or left-wing. Um, but if we look at some of the other figures who get um, honours, we see that, as Ray just pointed out, Clara Tuckming Sue, the trans doctor from Canberra, she had been a recipient some years before and obviously in a more liberal kind of era. And you might argue that there's a kind of culture war going on in some of these awards because um, Australia has a lot of problems and some of them are linked to religion and some of them aren't. And it did occur to me that for this episode, like three stories is a good little collection of stories. But we could have talked about, for example, the fact that Australia has a really terrifying domestic violence problem and intimate partner violence, intimate partner murder, often of um, women by their male partners. And a few years ago, Rosie Batty was named Australian of the Year and she suffered the most dreadful experience of her former partner beating her child, their child, to death. And rather than kind of collapsing in a heap, she galvanised and became a great focal point for discussions around familicide and fathers killing children and violence towards wives, etc. cetera. Uh, and similarly, actually, our Young Australian of the Year this year, Ray, was a very mm. impressive uh, choice and much more of a progressive choice in the sense that she was a young woman who'd survived teenage sexual abuse um, and come out uh, as, a, as a kind of focal point for survivors. Yes, I believe her name was Grace Tame, actually, and she was Australian. I think she might have been Young Australian of the Year. I'm yeah. not 100% sure. Um, I'll check it up. Um, I think she was full Australian of the Year, actually, Grace. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting how these awards that seemingly appear perhaps to just be something in name carry so much weight. And what's interesting, Carol, is the way that you say that they're sort of drawing attention away from other issues such as domestic violence and we've definitely seen of late here in Australia the the attention drawn to equality and discrimination that women are facing in the workplace. I wonder if these awards also draw attention away from what Australia Day is also known for and that is more connected to Indigenous Australia. You know, we could use that as a really cool segue to our second story because, of course, another thing that our listeners who aren't Australians might not know is that January 26th, Australia Day, is itself a day of enormous contention and divisiveness. And it's day of mourning. Right. Yes, mourning, that's me. right. Uh, 26th of January is usually considered a invasion day a day of mourning for our Indigenous people. Um, it's not actually the day that Cook, you know, turned up or anything like that. It's somewhere around that day. I think it was like um, a couple of days afterwards, something. Um, but, mm. yeah, it basically celebrates the uh, 
the imperial expansion into into Australian onto Australian shores, uh, and there's there's a big quite a big debate that has been raging for well a couple of decades at least about changing the date or at least stopping the celebrations on that date because you know for um, the the indigenous population of Australia it's not something they want to actually celebrate. Um, you know the loss of their land rights, the loss of their cultures, their heritages, just you know their it, people. It, their people. The the fact that it then leads into uh, the stolen generation and things like t- uh, nuclear testing in Tennant Creek. Uh, that was always you know a nice little uh, segue into Australian history. Um, the indig- the frontier wars, which still technically have never ceased. Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that, Ray. I think that this does segue on really well to our second story. So thank you for suggesting that, Carol, and thanks for that overview of why Australia Day is so controversial, Ray. For our second story, what we'd like to discuss is something that Carol and I actually spoke about in our recent episode on sacred trees, and that is actually the destruction of sacred trees that are central to Indigenous spirituality here in Australia. Now, the case we want to talk about is a case that occurred in Victoria where a tree was actually demolished as part of making a highway, essentially. And this sacred tree is something that has come to symbolise so much more. Carol, if you could fill us in on this particular episode. Well, the jabworm tree issue actually has been going on for quite a long time because um, in Victoria, at least, Indigenous communities have been working on a register of significant trees which should enjoy protections. Um, And of course, one of the problems, you know, Ray rightly pointed out that you know, Australia Day celebrates colonialism, really. Um, but the other thing that happens to Indigenous people, as well as, you know, the loss of their people and the stealing of their land, etc., is that their traditions are denigrated and generally regarded as not being somehow as serious as, say, the spiritual concerns of um, European colonists. Um, and so, Indigenous trees, Indigenous sacred places, um, it's been very hard for Indigenous people in Australia to have any of their sacred places protected. And we know that in the last year even, there have been mining companies detonating rock art sites Mm. that are 60,000 years old. So the tree... The, the, the cultural register of trees that was being developed in Victoria, um, it, it, what happens is usually that if, an, if Indigenous people want something and white people couldn't give a toss about it, it tends to happen. If Indigenous people want something and white people have a contrary interest, we have a, a conflict. And we see this with Indigenous people around the world. And I know Ray has some examples from the North American continent to discuss. But I was just going to say the reason that the Jabwarung tree injunction was such a big thing in December of 2020 was because there's this massive project called the Western Highway Project, which is being, you know, concreting and spaghetti junkins and bitumen and all the other uglification of the landscape that 
you know, industrial modernity brings. And the point is that it its expansion means a, a doom for these trees because it's going to go over the territory where they're in fact living and flourishing and so they have to be cut down. And that's really complicated because, you know, um, the government wants a highway but the Indigenous people want their trees and we can probably guess who's more likely to win. <laughs> Ray, Carol just said you had some examples. Can you um, fill us in on those? Mm-hmm. I, I have a couple of extra ones from, from here as well. I just figure I'll just mention all of them. Because um, I was having a conversation earlier today about the jabwaran trees and then it reminded me of things like uh, the Adani coal mine up in Queensland in Galilee Bay um, where the judge ended up granting a freehold on the on the to, over the title the land rights holders so to the point to I think the the local tribes are basically trespassing if they even go on that land now um, and it's just going to completely destroy um, the bay and the waterways and that kind of thing um, what else did they get then yeah, Carol mentioned blasting rock art and Rio Tinto blowing up part of the Pilbara last year um, uh, I think I read it they've got like plans for like 120 more possible sites that they have expansion issues in um, but then when you go over to North America there's things like Standing Rock you know, the, the North Dakota pipeline um, no, uh, yeah DAPL um, which got into the news with all the um, the indigenous people basically encamping and trying to stop them from um, building up the, the pipeline, um, which then you ended up seeing scenes of, you know, like the militarization of the police against them, who they were just trying to protect their land, that kind of thing. Uh, and then in Canada, there's the Wet'suwet'en. Um, I'm probably pronouncing these very terribly. I'm very bad with names, um, but they've actively been fighting against a, a rail corridor through their lands for the last 10 years, 10 plus years. Um, but the same thing, you get like the, the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are militarizing against them. Um, but the thing that I think is really important in all of this, um, especially, you know, even the things like the Jabwara trees is the um, connection to like a global community through things like social media um, Everything that's like the Jabwara, I'm looking at the Jabwara website now that they've got for the community there. Um, the Wet'suwet'en one is really good. Um, lots of videos, lots of sort of little um, um, sound bites and that kind of thing. But, yeah, I think it's just a, a good connection that they're, they're making now because these things, like um, the Great Western, what's the Western Highway, Carol? Yeah. Uh, that started being planned in like 2013, but none of us heard about it until they really wanted to knock down these trees. And that's yeah. actually a really interesting point, right? Because um, it's it's really depressing how rapid everything has become, and also how covert much government activity is. Now we have had environmental triumphs in Australia. Um, I wouldn't want everyone to think that we didn't, though the country is arid and salt, the land is 
salt saturated and we have terrible um, records on killing off our wildlife and natural environments. The whole place is, in large sense, pretty terrible. But there have been some triumphs. When I was a teenager, the Franklin River was going to be dammed in Tasmania and people went down there very much in the manner of the Standing Rock protests in their thousands. I actually knew people who left university and high school in Sydney and went to live in um, Tasmania on the site of where the Franklin Dam was going to happen. And all sorts of people helped out. Like, for example, um, anthroposophists, Rudolf Steiner people, were baking bread and making food for the, the group. And, you know, there were all sorts of people, some of them liberal Christians, especially members of the Uniting Church, were kind of pushing a, a strong environmental line. And again, in Tasmania, a couple of years ago, there was actually a, 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 a paper mill, but guns were going to build an enormous paper mill, and that was stopped. But the Jab Warren situation, certainly most people didn't know about this Western Highway project. Once it became fairly clear that something was about to happen, um, the Jab Warren Heritage Protection Embassy was actually set up in June of 2018. So we're not talking about like something that came together in six weeks when the machinery was rolling. People were aware. They set up a legal entity. They started working really firmly to commence legal actions, make protests, advertise, start petitions. And the problem was... Um, the protest on the ground began too. So as the machinery was advancing, there were in fact encampments of Indigenous people and their supporters. Um, but in October of last year, nevertheless, one of the identified trees was simply just chopped down in front of all of these protesters. And, of course, there was like the usual surge to protect it, the police arrested Dozens of people, charges were laid, all sorts of things like that. Um, and, of course, it's now, I think, much more um, important. And there was a temporary injunction granted in December. One of the trees was already gone and there were six that were identified. The other five were actually not technically to be felled, but then there's a question, which I think, again, Ray, you might want to comment on this because I think Standing Rock is very similar, um, there's a question about if the trees were absolutely hard up against the concrete um, walling beside a highway, does that in some sense compromise or sully their sacredness and their situation in the land for the people who use them? Um, well, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline was more, more of a... a an issue of its oil being draped over rivers and marshlands and, like, th these are the, the drinking waters and that kind of thing. So that their, their main problem was we can't trust this to not leak or break or seep into the drinking water that we, you know, we use for our daily life. Um, of course it did. It, uh, at one point it, it, it burst and leaked into one of the rivers nearby. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's like 
why why can't they just do the thing that they do in you know certain places like in Ireland? You know, find a fairy mound, go around it. You know, these things are all straight lines. Just go a little bit further and then turn. So, it is a bit depressing when we start to think about it in that sense. It really does sort of portray to us. I guess the hierarchy that is still present in Australian society. And in that sense, I'm guessing, you know, are there any other examples? I mean, Ray, you just brought up this idea of going around fairy mounds. Carol, I wonder if you can tell us about other examples like the one Ray just mentioned. When Ray and I were discussing what topics we'd like to share with you for this episode, as well as the Irish going around the fairy mounds, which you just mentioned, you know that there are like um, elf seekers who suss out whether you can build a road in Iceland because there's still a strong popular belief in land spirits and if the road comes close to one of these places that it has folklore associated with it and that, people still say, oh, it, it's of great importance, then as Ray said, they put the road around it. Um, and it's something that you just don't see here, largely I think because the, at what I said earlier, the culture of our Indigenous people has been denigrated for absolutely, you know, ever, um, you know, didn't build big stone buildings, didn't have wheeled coaches, didn't, you know, do all the things that white colonialists thought were evidence of civilization, And there is a sense in which our culture is white, white kind of settler culture, not all settlers in Australia are white, settler culture is removed from the landscape and sees the landscape only in kind of instrumental terms. It doesn't see it as like a sacred thing which has a whole lot of different sacred elements that have to be kept in a kind of harmony and have to be available to a community, a clan, a tribe, a, a, a people who've lived on country in that area for a long time. I guess the thing that has come up over the sort of last two stories, because when we were discussing the the honors that Margaret Court received, the question was around her as as Ray put it, a firebrand preacher, and the idea that she was really infringing on people's human rights, particularly that of the LGBTIQ plus community, in what she was preaching in church. And really, the concept of human rights is coming up here again around the Jabwarung trees and the concept of that denigration of culture and really that idea of, of right to culture. And human rights seems to be a theme here. So I'd like to move on to our last story, which is about the new change or suppression bill passed in Victoria this year, Ray. It took them 12 hours. It took them 12 hours to discuss it. Yeah, to, to go... Yep, these people should have some rights. Well, it passed, the um, which is good. Twenty-seven but... to nine, I think. Well, that's quite a lot. Twenty-seven to nine. Yep. Which means yeah. that, like a quarter, a quarter against three quarters in favour. But it does 
it does make you wonder about the incredibly lengthy debate, whether in fact some people were were really swayed during that debate and, you know, it served some purpose or whether it was just a lot of people who wanted to get up and say their piece about how they didn't actually want it to happen, being given the airtime. Mm. So this bill that's being passed, the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Bill 2020, will put in place new measures to protect Victorians from serious damage and trauma caused by conversion practices. The bill denounces such practices such as deceptive, harmful treatment and reinforces any ideology that believes that LGBT practices are flawed and wrong. I think I've got that correct. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this, if you two could tell us a little bit more about Mm. this particular bill that has has just passed in Victoria. I think a lot of... Right. Oh, you yeah. go. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I think a lot of the conversation was around um, the religious uh, aspects of the bill being, um, you know, allowed to like tell people what to do. Though I think they were a little bit concerned that you know if someone came to them with like spiritual needs that they wouldn't be able to say, oh, well, you know, you know what you should do. You should come to our church or something like that. Um, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. Um, but that seemed to be kept. That seemed to keep popping up um, in a lot of the news articles I was reading on it. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's yeah. It's, Carol, you were going to say. Well, I, I was going to say it's actually very common, and I'm thinking about a way in which this gay conversion therapy thing matches in with some religious studies stuff. People who work on new religious movements, you've probably all heard about brainwashing and deprogramming. Now. Generally, as I understand it, the psychiatric opinion is that brainwashing doesn't actually exist and it has been largely discredited as an aspect. Nuanced, people may feel pressured to do certain things, but generally the captivity narrative, I couldn't do anything, they took over my will, is generally used by people who have exited and feel you know, shame or disappointment or distress or something about what they've actually done. Um, Ray is right that a lot of the gay conversion therapy was occurring within, you know, fairly hardline churches and they had an ideal of stopping people being gay, making them make heterosexual marriages, etc. And, of course, what we haven't talked about is This sort of stuff is actually banned in quite a lot of places. And weirdly, because it's a very religious country, it's banned in the United States of America. So, you know, this is a very interesting thing. It's banned also in Brazil, Malta, Germany, and a couple of the provinces of Spain, though not all of them, I think, and a few other countries. So we're not talking about something that is widely accepted and allowed to happen everywhere. These sorts of protests, usually by people who've been subjected to this kind of therapy. Um, So it's religious because it links to certain religions, particularly very conservative versions of Christianity, their objection to anything other than heteronormativity. But the other thing is that um, 
these sorts of legislations, the ones that have banned gay conversion therapy, have also been basically um, about the violation of human rights, which I think was where you were going, Ray. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just sort of read up on a lot of the things that was coming out of America with, like, the Pray the Gay Away camps and that kind of thing, where it's just literally um, uh, lack, kept, keep, them, keep them awake, feed them nothing, base, get them to a point where their willpower is just they'll say whatever to get out of ever having to do that again kind of thing. Um, and I think that's, well, yeah, that's a really nice thing because nobody wants to actually torture, be tortured to, to be themselves. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually read anything like that happening here, you know, as far as like maybe in like sort of like really the hardline churches maybe, but nothing that I've actually seen. It does make you worry though that we're just not seeing or not hearing, doesn't it? I mean, it makes me kind mm-hmm. of worry that, you know, just because we don't see it reported doesn't mean it isn't sort of occurring in our own backyard. And I think bringing in this third story of this legislation that has recently passed in Victoria, in conjunction with our other stories on uh, the Jabwurrung tree and the Australia Day honours that were was awarded to Margaret Court, does really bring together that concept of human rights that we've been speaking about sort of throughout this episode. And I'm not sure that that's something that we really discuss very often in the religious studies sphere is this concept of sort of human rights in a very legal sense and the way that those two things interact. And Carol, I'm wondering what you think about this idea in an, an Australian context of of human rights and where we are. Well, I think actually, and I don't like bashing Australia because actually I'm very, very happy and proud to be an Australian. I've never really wanted to live anywhere else. But we have a lamentable human rights record, really. Just think about border protection. Just think about offshore processing for refugees. Just think about the fact that refugees as such don't have any rights in Australia. They're always characterised as lawbreakers and queue jumpers. Um, I mean, we don't have really powerful anti-discrimination legislation. We don't have powerful human rights legislation. And our governments regularly violate even international conventions. So, you know, we're like a pretty prosperous Western nation and people often like to say that Australia is kind of like a laid-back, fun place, and I say, hmm, you should try living here. Well, we don't have a Bill of Rights. Ray, what do you think? Um, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's sort of we, we, our government really shouldn't be pointing um, towards a human rights um, uh, human rights advocacy when they've got children locked up on a on out on Menace Island. Um, that which just there's no reason for them to be there, kind of thing. Um, but I, I like the idea of human rights in because I was going to mention this earlier, but this is just you know a little off topic. But remember when New Zealand uh, gave a river human status to basically keep it free and clear from developers? Yeah, I think human yep. rights do work, but we just got to get them first. <laughs> in New Zealand, yes, that. Judgment on that. Everything river. works in New Zealand, apparently. Given, 
Yeah, it was given the status. It was given personhood, and thus it had the personhood, same. Personhood. That's of, a term. Yes, inviolability mm. that the the person should have, and yeah, I think that's the way to go forward. Unfortunately, though, there's been a couple of articles just in the last couple of weeks about the state of of rivers in New Zealand and the fact that 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 personhood didn't work. So I guess that there's sort of a difference between rhetoric and action. I don't want to sort of, you know, be too negative about it, but I do want to thank you both um, for being with us here today on uh, the Religious Studies Project. Thank you, Brianne, for hosting. Thanks, Brie. Thanks, everyone. Just wanted to let all of our listeners know that um, if you want to keep us on the air and keep us free, head to the Religious Studies website and support us by clicking on um, at the Patreon links to keep us on the air. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. And, of course, as always, thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.